0: You're listening to an irreverent podcast
1: for more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm
0: Hey friends, welcome to the speaking in church podcast. I'm Josie
1: and I'm Spencer. And this week we have Matt Young. He is a former minister, a current economist, and the author of the book "Jesus Wept." Everybody, welcome, Matt Young. Welcome! Woo! Yay! Hey guys,
0: it's great to <laughs> have on. We are stoked. You're only the second person who's written a book that's on this podcast, right?
1: I yeah, I think so. Yeah, so far, at least I know others are in the works.
0: I don't know. I think writing books is pretty impressive. So uh...
1: it's a lot of
2: work, but, uh, you know, it, hopefully it helps people. That's the goal.
0: Yeah. Real quick. Tell the people what your book's about.
2: Yeah. So, um, like Spence introduced me, used to be a minister, uh, my, like in my life, I just have like this idea that I want to help people and that's what I want to do with my life. Um, and I discovered very early on in uh, ministry that religion wasn't actually going to help people. Like I thought, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, shocker. So, um, I, uh, after a while, you know, went through things like political work and working in newspapers and wound up uh, going to grad school and becoming an economist. Uh, and, you know, I'm in a place where I actually feel like I'm helping people. But, um, you know, just because I am no longer a minister, uh, I'm still somewhat religious uh it's i i hesitate to like i'm a say i'm a christian because these days christian christianity is like more cultural than it actually is religious Mm -hmm. Uh, and i certainly don't fit in with that cultural uh crowd at all um but you know still still uh you know in the in the religious sense of the word. I'm, I'm, I still am Christian. Uh, but so the reason I wrote the book um, is, you know, so many people like the three of us are just not going to church anymore. Whether, you know, I don't, I don't know what either of your personal um, where you're sitting with your faith or where any of your listeners are, whether they are like me and still somewhat believe or whether they don't and have completely deconstructed either way, there's like the data shows that there's just, Millions of people, you know, basically born 1980 or 1985 and after, who are just giving it up. They're like, "No, church isn't for me anymore." Um, and so many, so much of what you hear whenever you discuss this uh, with with anybody who's religious, parents, pastors, doesn't matter who. Oh, you're either you know you you want to hide some secret sin, or the devil got a hold of you, or whatever it is. You know, everybody's everybody's heard that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of my past you know i was a minister for a little while political work economics now um, i felt like i was in a really good position to sort of write this book about why young people are actually leaving christianity you know what what it actually looks like from our point of view um i don't know that i actually qualify as a young person these days but you know uh, I might be one of the olds now. I'm not sure. I haven't decided. Oh, uh, <laughs> but uh, so the, the the purpose of the book, I wanted to um, sort of try to get older and conservative uh, Christians to sort of see it from everybody else's point of view. Uh, and because I'm an economist, I, I do a, a lot of research um, you know, I'm a nerd, huge nerd, obviously, you don't become an economist if you're cool. Uh, So I, even when I'm uh, not doing economics research, I love to do all sorts of other research. And um, the, so there, I, I do a lot of research into the book, and so the basically the whole premise of the book is, even if we are, even if we accept the argument that you know Jesus was real and was the Son of God and paid for people's sins, even if we you know sort of take the logical assumption that that is true, Christian churches today are still just doing it all wrong. Uh, just, you know, so much so that I don't think, uh, that Jesus would even recognize the Christian churches that exist today as having anything remotely to do with him. Uh, and, and so the, the purpose of the book is to, I take, uh, take 12 chapters of the book that was just coincidental. I wasn't trying to do 12 apostles or anything like that. I just, you know, it was 300 something pages and I was like 12 is enough, uh, So there's 12 chapters and in each chapter, I sort of take a really prominent teaching or event from the four gospels and give like historical narrative to begin with, to try to help people understand what it was like in the context that it happened um, or that it was supposed to have happened. And then uh, use that, you know, for the rest, for the rest of the chapter, I break out into, um, more like journalistic reporting about how badly Christians are at what that particular topic was. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking a lot. I'll let you guys get a word in.
0: Well, you're the guest. That's why yes. we have the guest. It's funny. Most of our guests say that. It's like, mm, as opposed to not talking guess but anyways it sounds like the perfect book um that a minister former minister slash current economist would write like yeah makes sense
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah you would think so um I, you know, I had, there were, I had several experiences and I actually decided to write the book where there was two friends within like a matter of, of a week or so where they were so frustrated because, you know, typical deconstruction experience, they were so frustrated because like nobody in their religious community was listening to them. And they were like, they just don't understand. I don't know how to say the things to help them understand. And, and then, I mean, that had so many of those experiences, but within a matter of about a week, I had two friends more, more or less say something along the lines of, I wish there was something I could hand to them, just give it to them and say, here, this is why I'm leaving. And I thought about it and I was like, you know what, if there's anybody in the world who could do that, I'm probably one of those people just given my my background, my past. So I decided to give it a shot. Um, Because, you know, young people, we grew up with the Internet. And so uh, facts actually really matter to us, which is not apparently something that really matters to people who, you know, are born in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, who knew?
0: Oh, truly well personally i appreciate the alignment of politics even in your whole journey i'm a huge political nerd um or masochist as it's actually more formally known these Absolutely. days <laughs> Absolutely. but where were you a minister what denomination were you a minister with before
2: um so it was like a uh, Protestant evangelical type denomination, but the, the big thing, um, like th- the big thing for me was that, uh, faith, like you hear kind of a lot of in ministry about like blind faith mm-hmm. and reading the Bible. I never once found an actual instance of blind faith ever. Mm-hmm. Like, just couldn't. In fact, I found the opposite. And, and I, I begin the book, the very first chapter of the book is, is, uh, you know, the quote from Jesus, you will, it, it based on, it's based on that quote from Jesus where, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I, I, you know, in that book, in the book, sort of the stance, the position that uh, I take there is like, Jesus didn't qualify that. He didn't say like religious truths will set you free or, you know, you, Kellyanne Conway in the White House, you know, alternative truths, truths will set you free. Like, there was nothing like that. It was just plain and simple. Truth will set you free. And if if that's the case, and, you know, Christians have to take the position that that's the case because those are Jesus's own words. So if that's the case, then what that means is that all truth has to lead you to God. It can't take you anywhere else. It just factually can't. That's the logical conclusion that Christians have to take from the Bible. And the so so the point of of the book is is to you know the places where christians believe in something that is really more traditional than it is factual uh that's what's led them away from god and young people see that we care about the facts and so um when when you hear when at least when i would hear something traditional um in in church when i was growing up that i just knew wasn't factually correct it would always it always left me with a bad taste in my mouth that always made me um you know, it always left me feeling like I was in the wrong place. Um, and I actually didn't go to church very much when I was younger. I was like 17 or 18 when I like had my come to Jesus moment and, uh, really jumped hard in and then put myself on a ministry path for a few years. And, and, and then by the early twenties, I was like, no, nah, this, this just isn't, isn't it for me. Um, but the thing, the thing that really, uh, amazes me about the, especially like the conservative Christian movement. I refer to it over and over in my book is the corporate Christians, uh, just cause there's so much commoditization of the church, uh, you know, for money and for more church influence and those sorts of things. But mm. uh, what really, you know, young people, we are willing to look at everything, the best Evidence there is to find facts, and and that just traditional traditionally Christianity that you know you just don't do that. We can everybody has examples where they're like, oh, you can't believe this; you have to have faith. And it's like, there's no such thing as blind faith. You actually need to be able to believe in something. um You know, there. anybody I've 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 had a discussion with a thousand people where you know, find me an instance of blind faith in the in the Bible, and you know that they'll bring up some something, um, and. You look into it a little, you know, you actually think about it. Moses didn't have blind faith. He saw a burning bush and, you know, Abraham didn't have blind faith. He, you know, he, Any and it doesn't matter any of it. Uh, There's, there's, there's actually something to base faith on. And modern day Christians insist that there, you don't need something to base faith on that, the, you know, those facts aren't particularly relevant, which doesn't make sense. Um, and th- sort of the way I, I explain it to people quite often is um, modern conservative Christians, they're really good at like learning the words in the Bible, but that's not the same thing as learning the Bible. And mm. the way I, like to help people understand it is like you think about Abraham Lincoln with the Gettysburg Address. It's one of the most famous speeches in the history of the United States, and it should be. Uh, but that's because of the context of the Civil War. Like if William Howard Taft is given the the Gettysburg Address in 1910, no one cares, and that speech gets almost entirely <laughs> yeah. lost. Like, so it doesn't it doesn't matter how good somebody is at remembering the words in the Gettysburg Address. If they don't actually understand the context of the Civil War, the Gettysburg Address doesn't mean anything. And the more uh, the more you study the Civil War, the more meaningful the Gettysburg Address becomes. And the Bible is the same way. Uh, th- what i what I see, what a lot of young people that I talk to see is, conservative Christians are really good at remembering the words in the Bible and studying the words in the Bible, but they don't know almost anything about the Bible itself. And it's just like with the Gettysburg Address, unless you actually know the context in which the Bible existed, you lose a whole lot of the meaning. And that's where you're able to, uh, you know, it's really, it becomes really easy to believe in things like traditions. And if you don't actually know the history and the facts and everything around the Bible, that historians and archeologists and everybody, um, you know, these academics are able to help us to learn, you know, these are the truths. These are the facts, you know, the truth that sets you free. If you ignore all that, then what Jesus are you believing in? Mm. And, you know, too often it's this, white middle-class conservative Republican Jesus who was born in 1965, and that person just didn't exist historically, and at what point, the question that I, this is usually where people uh, get really mad and yell at me and the discussion ends, Uh, because like if that's the case, at what point are you worshiping a false idol and putting some other God before the God of the Bible? if you're not willing to actually understand the bible uh so that's uh yeah that's you know explaining all the the origins of the book um
0: yeah well i mean i don't know correct me if i'm wrong spencer but i feel like we often talk about the um more emotional sides of leaving evangelicalism and like we hardly ever spend a lot of time on the logical side, which is pretty much why I would have say I personally left. It was like, a, mm, you're not really following the rules here, everybody. Um, yeah. That were seem to be so clearly outlined to me, at least. Like, so I don't understand what's happening here. Like, you're not actually interested in feeding the poor. Or, you know, advocating for social justice and change. So it sounds like we're not on the same page here. But you know, for a lot of people yeah. it could be a mix too.
2: Yeah. You're uh you're one of those people that uh, decided to take the Bible, you know, factually instead of spiritually. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of those annoying heretics.
0: I know. The Wesleyan quadrilateral, we like to say, husbands yeah
1: <laughs> uh, so um very recently the gospel coalition just put out an article that's that says they, they think the four the four big reasons people deconstruct they say are church hurt poor teaching the desire to sin and street cred. What? Um, but so I think it's funny because when you think about... I, yeah,
2: I, I became an economist because I wanted street cred. That's yes, why I'm a race.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: it, I wanted the youths to think I was really cool with uh, my nerdy math numbers. <laughs> well,
1: and it's funny because I think if you, you know, if you think about each of those of like, it, you know, church hurt is actually a very common one. But I think a lot of times people that are still in the that are still in the church invalidate it with the whole like well that means that you were like you know like your faith was in people or was in the church it wasn't in god which is really like just an oxymoron freaking dumb because like you said the bible literally says that we are the church like we are the body of christ and so like yeah church hurt is valid Mm -hmm. um you know the next one again poor teaching they would see poor teaching as like Again, like, oh, we just don't know the Bible, but exactly what you said, Matt. No, like we take the Bible so seriously that we're tired of what we see. We're tired of Mm -hmm. what's happening. And then, you know, you go into the next ones of, oh, a desire to sin. Well, again, um, we've started to take the Bible seriously and learn context that things that you think are sin actually aren't um uh you know like let's hashtag lgbtq community um that yeah, that's just not a sin um uh and then you know the big one street cred which i don't even understand because if they think that if they think that leaving leaving your community gives you street cred like that's just bogus and that just like is really again it's like invalidating of Yeah, I'm going to leave everything I've ever known, my biggest support system, my friends, my family for street cred. That doesn't correlate. Yeah.
2: Because there's yeah. just a line of people outside, you know, smoking their joints and drinking their alcohol, <laughs> with their with their tattoos and their six ear piercings just waiting for you and just, you know, so that you can be cool like them.
0: Exactly. How they dare you to- Matt, you just described me. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they want me to they really want me to walk up and be like, guess what, guys? I left the church and they're like, damn, you're the coolest person we've ever met. <laughs>
0: and meanwhile they're just like "Mm, take you long enough weirdo
1: (laughs) or again i feel like again i think christians are like so obsessed with especially because we build our you know we're taught to build our community around fellow christians in the church that when we have friends that aren't christian like truthfully so many of them just don't care either way like Mm -mm. if i was still in it they would not care and if I'm out of it, they don't care because it yeah. really doesn't doesn't bother them. It has nothing to do with how they live their life. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah it's amazing. Um, you know, it's what's really funny bringing this up. Uh, I talk about this a lot because it's this is so surprisingly. Um, of all the places where I call, uh, where I basically say Christians are failing Christianity, um, what's amazing is the place where I get the most pushback. So when I talk about Colin Kaepernick, uh hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So, uh, so the the there's an entire section of the book, three chapters where I talk just about social justice, um, and. The there's the, the chapter called uh, With Tax Collectors and Sinners because, you know, Jesus was uh, you know, one of his apostles, Matthew, was a tax collector and he had no problem associating himself with uh, people that the religious ruling class thought were, were terrible people. Um, and what's really interesting is uh, in that story there's a Pharisee it's the Bible, there's two versions of the story. It's not clear whether, um, it's two different events that happen or two different versions of the same event. It doesn't matter, but there's a Pharisee, uh, who invites Jesus over, um, for, for dinner. And this lady comes in, um, some kind of sinner. Um, one of the versions of the story suggests prostitute and she anoints his head with oil and washes his feet and cry, you know, bathes his feet in tears and that sort of stuff. And, um, What's, what's really, you know, I, I, I write about this in the book because there's, you know, the great, the great commandment in the Bible is love God and love your neighbor. Uh, And, and a lot of people misunderstand that that as commandment number one and commandment number two, but the way that it's, the way that it's written, the, the most correct, I guess, like translation is that loving your neighbor is the same thing as loving God. Mm. And so it's not commandment one and commandment two, it's all commandment one, just loving other people. Um, And, and what's really interesting is like in the Bible, Jesus is very clear. If you, you know, about how you love God, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's clear. That's the end of it. Never once ever says, this is how you love other people. And what blows me away is when Christians are like, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I love Muslims, but I don't want them to blow me up. I love Hispanic people, but I don't want them to take my job. I love black people, but I don't want them to bring gangs and drugs into my kid's school. And it's like, mm. you actually don't love them. You realize that, right? And, and so the reason that I bring up the story of of that woman in the Pharisee's house who washes Jesus' feet is because like, he gives that explicitly in the bible jesus says she had shown great love and traditionally in in hebrew culture um so here's actually a fun tangent complete side note um like there's a a, a law of hospitality in hebrew culture that is so uh like meaningful that the writers of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, them, those people, they understood the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah not to be homosexuality, but to be violating the law of hospitality mm-hmm. uh, I that, I about that in the book as well. Um, so anyway, uh, Jesus points out to this Pharisee like, hey you didn't do any of this stuff for me. You came up short with this hospitality. And here's this woman who comes in here in front of you, who's someone who's, you know, you're a religious elite. She's a hooker. She is more than happy to open herself up and expose herself to ridicule to do something for me, who she's never met. And the, the, the place where that I actually get the people, the most angry in the book is I'm like, Hey, that sounds to me a lot like Colin Kaepernick. Here's a guy who, you know, we, we have seen several instances, high profile instances of professional athlete athletes in the NFL and the NBA that get stopped by police. And then once the police find out, Oh, this is a professional athlete. Okay. We're going to let you go. Like I, I document them in the book. So like Colin Kaepernick, personally is not really in very much danger. Um, but this guy takes the 49ers to the Super Bowl, and then after decides to start taking a knee during the national Anthem. Um, obviously, I mean, I'm not telling you guys or probably not even telling your audience anything. You don't know that he wasn't being disrespectful when he knelt down, he consulted with somebody who was a veteran beforehand and they decided that was the respectful way to protest rather than to sit on the bench uh, during the national Anthem. But like the, the point was, we, the evidence that police will let professional athletes go, um, you know, because they're professional athletes, um, suggests that Colin Kaepernick's life wasn't really in danger like a lot of other people of color who might get stopped by the police. But he was willing to do the same thing that this woman did in the New Testament. He took mm. a public stand. He opened himself up to ridicule. He let people come after him, lost his entire career to benefit people that he would never meet, ever. Mm-hmm because he understood where they were in his life. And to me, that is the very definition of Christianity. Um, I mean, eventually he, you know, several years later, he got, you know, Nike gave him a good sponsorship for, for, you know, standing up for what, for what he believed in. But like, there were several years there where he had no idea that anything like that was going to happen. There were several years there where he's doing this losing out on millions of dollars. The guy, I think it was like his second or third year in the NFL took the 49ers to the Super Bowl. was a great quarterback. And he's willing to give all that up to help people. He's never going to meet. There are, you know, there's like 40 something million black people in the United States. He's going to meet at most, what, 100,000 of them? (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's there's millions of people he's never going to meet that he's taking a knee and sacrificing his career so that the spotlight can be on them. And to me, that is far more Christian than anything that, you know, Joel Osteen or, you know, any of those mega church pastors or anything like that did.
0: Ooh, Joel Osteen, I'm still salty about you not opening up your church. Still salty, Joel Osteen. Yeah
1: it's coming into the winter
0: season i know now fucking asshole really ruined my life with this prosperity gospel my parents really bought into it but whatever
2: that's that's so as soon as i finish with the the first chapter where i talk about the truth will set you free and about how if you're not uh you know if you're not actually trying to find factual truths. You might not be believing in the Jesus that actually existed. You might be believing in a false God. The very next chapter I go into is the prosperity gospel because mm. man, Jesus have hated that nonsense.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty sure my parents are convinced that um, I'm their meal ticket to the prosperity gospel that they were promised. It's fine. It's fine. I'll survive. I'm poor. But anyways, yeah, I mean, wowee. You're so smart, Matt. Did you know that? Uh,
2: I I try to be smart. I
1: don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're an economist.
0: <laughs> I know the viewers can't see this, but he has like his cool little books behind him, little golf right there, little children's pictures. Wow, very successful appearance. We love it. But anyways, I'm curious. No, that's I've the only.
2: Thing I learned most from growing up. Uh, <laughs> The appearance of success. Mm. Oh, good
0: Lord. He's still got it, friends. And part of that success, I feel like, is being an economist. And I want to be honest, I don't know what an economist does. I understand, like, the economy. And, like, I took economy in high school, I took the AP class, I knew what it was. But what do you, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah what does that so, mean? Yeah, so so my my job, um, my actual focus in my PhD studies was tax economics, and so in my job now I evaluate policy to see how to improve it, whether or not it works, that sort of stuff. So, like I said at the beginning, like I had this crazy idea that I wanted to you know live a life where I actually help people, um, and. I, you know, it just so happened that I thought economics was one of those ways, and so um, in my job, I I take, you know, I, I do a lot with financial policy, but not just financial policy. I I do a lot with social policy as well, um, things like social safety net programs and and stuff like that. And I actually take the data and evaluate: Hey, is this the best way to improve someone else's life? Is this, you know, is there a way we can spend tax dollars? Um, that uh, that that would help more people, or that would help the same number of people more efficiently, or is there a way we could change the program that would do it? And so, I do that sort of analysis, and then um, you know, advise my clients on on um, what types of changes or what sorts of changes they might want to make uh, to improve these pro- these programs. So oh my you, gosh,
1: you went from um, feel-good church charity to like true trying to figure out how to do things equity like how to build equity among people
0: with yeah. the facts
1: wow i love that <laughs> especially yeah. i i love that because um friends we're heading into the christmas season which mm. means if you see people filling shoe boxes run away because <laughs> uh shoe boxes to children in the quote-unquote third world is uh not what jesus was talking about, I'm just gonna leave it at that.
0: (laughs) Also, um, just so, my grandma gets those boxes in Mexico to pass out in her village, it's
2: really funny. I've always thought that it was just hilarious. So I'll I'll, I'll take off my uh, biblical criticism hat for a minute and put on my economist hat and just like, economists hate, hate sending like third world countries, items, like sending them shoes and sending them clothes and those sorts of things. We hate it because like, if I buy a hundred pairs of shoes and send them to a hundred kids in an impoverished third world country, well, that's a hundred pairs of shoes that they're not going to buy in the local economy. And Mm -hmm. so there's zero value added to, I mean, like there's obviously the, the the people are better off the children are better off because they have shoes, but there's, but that's it. So there's no, there's no what economists would call in this value added. Like there's no knock on effect there. Whereas if they buy a hundred pairs of shoes from, from, you know, cobblers uh, in, in third world countries, and that's jobs that they're that are created with those hundred shoes. And then they, those people spend the, the money from those shoes on housing and on food. And it, and it, there's a, there's an added value. There's these knock on effects. So, you know, just like from the ec- economist perspective, if you want to do charitable work for Christmas, don't send presents to people in third world countries, send them money.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, we
1: they, we've they actually,
2: can, they just... can do better with it than we can. <laughs>
1: yep Mm -hmm. well and we've had a couple episodes about this about like sustainable charity versus just like like i said that feel good charity of exactly what you said like me going to the dollar store because honestly like that's what you do because Mm -hmm. we want to give but we're like oh we're gonna go to the dollar store and we fill up the these shoe boxes with cheapo crap and send it to kids in the, in the quote unquote third world. And what does it do? It doesn't do a hill of beans <laughs> versus, yeah uh, you know, we've had some of our, like I said, previous guests talking about, they, exactly what you said, they have organizations that, you know, we give them our money and they're equipping native populations, whether it's through healthcare or through being able to like get steady income through like, even just like getting the paperwork they need, like a government ID, like people don't realize how hard that is in certain countries because here it's just so easy to kind of get for a lot of people. And so, yeah, it's things like that of, I like having that perspective of, like you said, it's it's not even just about, like, trying to trash churches. It's about, like, look at this from, like, the actual, like, economic side of things that are going to impact people daily. Like, it has no value. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the question
0: becomes, why don't these churches pay attention to these facts and data outside, like, of what they're doing in charity, right? Well, it's because... Um, you know, it's like like not feel good as good of a write-off, <laughs> yeah.
2: and we like yeah. to feel oh, good
1: about uh, ourselves. Saying, yeah, yeah,
2: we I, I am, I am gonna take my nerd hat off because you're making me get into like research by Andreoni and on Warm Glow and all through it. So I'm gonna like not get into that because <laughs> you're, li- will go to sleep. Oh no. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's so much of it. I think is just about um, like church you know they're they're they are in it to produce that good feeling Mm -hmm. um if you know if you feel good about something then it has to be right which um drives me nuts like just as a as a complete aside like that's that's how we ended up where we are now is is uh you know if it feels good it has to be right you know and and everything you know all of the political and I write about a lot of political stuff in this book because that's a lot of the reason that young people are leaving the church. Um like I, I'll so I'll give you an example. Um this isn't in the book, but uh Similar to things that are in the book, I, this book was was published f- a few weeks before the 2020 election. And since 2020 election, I've had um, plenty of conversations with uh, conservative people. I'm still friends with a lot of conservative people. I don't see any reason why I should cut someone out of my life because I disagree with them politically. Um, and th- I ha- there's one particular conversation I had with somebody who's just incredibly conservative, and he's talking about you know how Joe Biden obviously stole the election and Donald Trump actually won. And I was, and and I was, yeah, you know, like as you do when you rely on feelings rather than facts. And, uh, you know, that was sort of where I started asking him questions was to help him identify that these are things that he believes rather than things that are based on actual fact. And, and, um, it got to, uh, where I, I, in the point of conversation um, where he eventually, he, he eventually, you know, basically said, well, I prayed about it. And the Holy Spirit told me that Donald Trump actually won the election. And hmm. I was like, I was like, that isn't what the Holy Spirit does. Yep. That's not how it works. And, and for like literally 45 minutes, I went through the Bible with my friend and I was like, find me any instance in the Bible where the Holy spirit is doing something. And, and so we went through and we found a whole bunch of them. And my question for each one of them was, was this something the person could have done themselves? And every time the answer is no. Anytime in the Bible, the Holy Spirit does anything or makes anybody feel anything, it is because it's something they cannot do themselves. Um, in, in the New Testament, Paul writes about how, the, you know, the Holy Spirit helps to understand mysteries of heaven, like things that we can't understand on our own. When when uh, Jesus and his apostles are walking between cities and he asks, who do men say that I am? And they list, you know. John the Baptist and Elijah and these sorts of people, um, he, you know, he asked them that, well, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, oh, you're the Messiah. And it's really clear, like another side note. I love side notes. Like it's really clear. Peter doesn't actually understand the Messiah the same way, you know, he understood it. Um, you're making me want to get into like Hebrew words and translations and things like that wow don't want to put everybody to sleep but like he understood it as the traditional messiah like Jesus whoever the messiah was was going to come in sword blazing and whip Rome in the rear end and kick him out and the Jews would all be free a political
1: messiah yeah exactly
2: Mm -hmm. and that's clearly not Uh, what Jesus's intent was. Um, but what's really interesting is like, there's no possible way Paul or Paul, there's no possible way Peter could have known that by on his own. And that's when Jesus is like, no, no person told you this. The Holy spirit told you this. Cause like, that's something he cannot know on his own. Mm -hmm. And for my friend, I was like, look, you can actually know whether or not the election was stolen on your own. The Holy Spirit cannot tell you whether it was or wasn't because you can find that out on your own. And so I was like, have you actually read any of the court documents? There's been at least 62 different cases that I've found that there are court documents for. Have you read any of those? And he was like, well, no. And I was like, have you talked to, like, I do a lot of stats work. Have you talked to somebody like me about these crazy stats theories that are floating around the internet and about how reasonable they are, or if they have provide any evidence because they don't. And he's like, well, no. And like, basically what it comes down to, and you know, shocker of all shockers is this guy was listening to Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh and it made him feel good. And so he was like, well, it must be true. Cause I feel good. And now we're gonna circle way back around from my big long tangent, I went on and be like, and and like, that's how Christians do a lot of their charity work, mm-hmm. it, you know, makes us feel good. And that's that's how so many churches design their entire ministry is like, this makes people feel good.
1: And I, I wanna just clarify too, there's like serving other people should make you feel good. Cause I think it's in our human nature. Like we want to be serving and loving and kind to people but there's a big difference between like, you know, like I'm in ministry, our church partners with, uh, an old folks home. They do have a Bible study there. My little fourth and fifth graders are going to write them some Christmas cards that should make them feel good because old people like getting cards from kids. So that's something that is genuinely, it's okay to feel good about that. But like you said, of you, but feeling good about sending trinkets and socks on the other side of the world that has no lasting impact. Like, That like, that isn't helpful versus Mm -hmm. companionship to an older person is helpful for a lot of reasons, like socially, mentally, emotionally, like that's something to feel good about versus like I said, this sort of like, here's a box full of crap. It'll last you a week. Should we feel good about that? Probably not. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So economists have studied this and they call it warm glow where you're charitable for the sake of your own feeling good rather than Mm. actual altruism you care about the good of somebody else um and and most of the conclusion from economic studies is that most of the time this isn't specific only to christians um but uh most of the time when people are charitable they do it for warm glow rather than for altruism Um,
0: yeah i mean i always tell people i mean people like to see me as a generous person which is um weird to me but i tell people like i'm just willing to do the things that people aren't necessarily willing to do like i have a friend right now she's going through a hard time and she needs friends to come over and hang out with her and i have to drive and take time out of my day and emotional energy to go sit with my friend whether she's crying or whatever and be with her um i feel good with helping her out but it sucks to like rearrange my schedule and to like you know sit there while she cries but you know that's the charitable act
2: yeah that's not a that's not a benefit for josie
0: right (laughs) or like helping out with the homeless population yeah it's cool to spoon out some food on thanksgiving day but doing the hard work sucks because you know people for whatever reason things suck and i would argue that if things Aren't sucking. You're not really doing a whole lot of good charitable work.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean that's that's it's probably a good argument, and and this is something I point out whenever uh, I get an, an angry old conservative Christian reading my book. Like this is this is uh, a big part of what I point out to them is like the the heretics like us and probably a lot of your listeners. Uh, the actual like definitional Christianity, we are doing that more than you are.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. and,
2: and we're the ones that aren't the you know the quote-unquote christians uh i you know i i've I, there's got to be a, like a, another term for people that are you know like actual practical christians rather than cultural christians i don't know maybe that's the term practical <laughs> it's <Christianity. laughs>
0: yeah it's
1: literally just like i mean it's like in the bible when jesus is like y'all are just a bunch of pharisees like sitting around on your high horse mm-hmm. and then you know even just like something as simple as like the story of the good Samaritan, like these places, like people are finding love and acceptance and help in places that like the Christian culture has told us you can never find that there. Yeah, people are finding it there daily and they're not finding it in you and somehow you're mad at like you're mad at us because we want to hang out with these people instead of you like that doesn't make yeah. any sense but that's yeah. the whole thing they're just
0: salty because they're not the controlling party any longer they're not the people that you know can say separation of church and state when it comes to your religion, but not mine. You know, it's all, I feel like it's just all a control grab.
2: There there are so many parallels between like the Pharisees in Jesus time and the Christian church. Now, um, so many, uh, the, the, the belief in tradition rather than in actual religious doctrine, uh, stands out so much, but like the one that, that, really gets me um that we're talking about right now is that like by the time Jesus was was around the entire emphasis of the Jewish Jewish faith was on purity and Jesus came around he was like no y'all are doing this wrong like that's not what it's supposed to be purity isn't supposed to be the emphasis mm-hmm. and uh, and, and, you know, that's the the unique thing about Jesus. Like, and again, this is where people need to study the actual Bible itself to understand this and not just the words in it. Like people read the Bible and they're like, Oh, Jesus was performing miracles and Jesus was, um, helping out poor people and all that, like, none of that's actually unique. There are, there's a lot of historical records that there were plenty of preachers running around and actually performing miracles and healing people. Um, you know, I mean, there's, that's why some of the gospel writers go to such length and extent to make sure that they point out that some of Jesus's miracles are extra special, like healing someone who was born blind or raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for several days. Like they go to, they go to lengths to point out, Hey, he's not normal. But like the the, really the thing that set Jesus apart from everybody else of his time was that he was like, hey, this purity, this religion of purity, that's not how it's supposed to be. And like the people he was fighting, I, 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 love so much when I hear Christians like, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus went after those sinners all the time. He showed tough love. And it's like, yeah, who were those sinners? the there's never an instance in the Bible where he gets mad at somebody who is not his own religious leader. Mm-hmm. every single time he starts a fight it's with his own religious leaders because they're doing it wrong and that i mean there's so much emphasis on pure on the purity culture here in christianity i mean i you guys have had several of the gag stories on your podcast about like the purity ceremonies with 14 year old girls and their dads and stuff like that and it's just mm-hmm. like, that that purity that that's missing the point Uh, and, and that's, that, that was really the one unique thing about Jesus. The one defining characteristic is he was like, Hey, this, this purity thing, we're doing it wrong. And, and the way that I describe it, and, and again, this is where, this is the first time when I'll bring my faith into it, even just a little bit, um, and, and get, get slight, slightly religious, um, is like, uh, you think about um, like the the woman who was taken in adultery and John. Um, oh, does that mean it's time for me to shut up?
0: Nope. That's um. I I don't know what that was for. Sorry.
2: Okay. Sorry, everybody. Cool. <laughs> Uh, So you you think about like the woman who's taken in adultery in John, like they bring her in front, they they bring her in front of Jesus, all these Pharisees bring her in front of Jesus and they're like, hey, law Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And like, they are trying to trap Jesus. Cause like, if he says, yeah, stoner, follow the law of Moses. Then they're like, oh, you're not as loving and as charitable as you say that you are. You're a false prophet. And if he says, well, no, we can't stoner. We have, you know, then they're like, oh, you don't follow the law of Moses. You're a false prophet. So they're trying to trap him. And what's really interesting is like in, in English Bibles, most English Bibles, it says he lays down and he writes, he starts drawing in the sand. Um, and then he says, you know anyone who's without sin cast the first stone. What's really interesting is in the Hebrew Bible and in some of the older translations, like he bends down and he writes the names of every one of those Pharisees. And then he writes their sins next to their name, um, which, which in this context we'd probably understand as their own violation of the law of Moses. And then he says, any of you who hasn't done anything I've written here in the sand, go ahead and kill her is basically what he says. Um, and and then they and that's why they you know, they all feel shame and they turn around and they leave and he says you know he he lifts the woman up she's you know sitting on the ground probably waiting there to die and he lifts her up and he says hey where are your accusers and she says well there's no one accusing me and he says I'm not accusing you either just go on go on your way and and stop sinning and that's it that's the end of it. But then you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, who uh, you know he goes after quite a bit, um, gets really upset at them several times about their hypocrisies and all those sorts of things. Um, they're the ones that he really takes issue with. So, he, and and here, so like I said, just just like thirty or seconds or a minute of of my own personal faith, because um, this is to me where Christians get it so wrong. Um, is if if you take the assumption, the argument that I take in this book that Jesus really was a Son of God and really to pay for people's sins, then he knew. As he was writing those those Pharisees' sins in the sand, he knew he was going to have to suffer the consequences of that woman's adultery knew mm. that he was going to have had every right to to start stoning her and kill her and he didn't mm. and I think about why that is, and you know the, the john begins the gospel of John begins with like in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word, you know, and it says that he was made flesh. And so like, I think about that theologically and, and logically. Um, and like, if Jesus really was the son of God, he became, I don't know, quasi human, I guess is the right way to describe it. And like, understands how bad life can suck. Like, he gets it. He knows why people make bad decisions. And if we assume that there are certain decisions that are moral sins, like, he gets it. He understands why someone might be pushed into making that decision, which is exactly why he's able to tell this woman taken in adultery, just don't go and stop. Just go on. Just stop sinning. And that's the end of it. So if anybody makes a mistake i think he gets it but if there's somebody who has the opportunity you know because he knows how bad it can suck because he knows how much life can really like blow sometimes like if if i see somebody who really needs my help and i decide not to help him i don't think he gets that understands that because not only like he knows why I might do something stupid because he, you know, he gets, he gets me, but he also gets that other person. He understands that other person too. So like, if, if I see that other person who really needs help, and decide not to help him, I don't think he understands that. And I think that's why he went after the Pharisees so much, why he went after his own religious leaders so much, is because they had redefined their entire faith to be something where purity is all that mattered. Keeping yourself pure, ritual purity was how you pleased God. When what he comes, Jesus comes along and basically says, y'all are getting this wrong. It's helping people. That is going to get you closer to God. And I think that modern day Christians, conservative corporate Christians today, make that same mistake. And that's why, you know, anybody who who deconstructs are like, oh, you just had you were sinning all along and you wanted to go be able to sin some more. And it's like, that shouldn't actually matter if you're really following the Jesus as he's described in the Bible.
0: Mm -hmm. and that's why we here at the speaking in church podcast go after the modern day pharisees just like jesus it is our birthright (laughs) our calling in life and my greatest pleasure
2: (laughs) no doubt
0: (laughs) oh no i'm too i'm too aggressive for my own good but matt Wowie. you're a smart guy. We love having you and you should come back. Um, I'm always looking for a political friend, um, especially on this podcast.
2: So I, I would, I'd love to come back. We can talk about, uh, I mean, you know, talk mostly about the book this time, but we can talk about like religious and economic, how, how religion and economics and politics interweave and uh, mm. how, you know,
1: there's some uh, there's some big uh, Supreme Court hearings coming up that are well in the yeah. religious sector, so maybe we'll have to talk about. Wow, this is,
2: this is something else as an economist. I just don't understand because, like, I, I wrote about this in the book as well. Like, we don't have a ton of abortion data, so it's not 100% clear. But like, the more and more data we get, the, the more clear the picture becomes that like banning abortion actually kills more people.
1: So mm-hmm. you
2: know, that's that's not news to any of your listeners.
1: Uh, <laughs> not the, news the, to a lot the, of the women. Old, the old
2: white ladies clutching their pearls, that would, you know, I'd get kicked out of their house for that. And I write about that in the book as well
0: yeah mortal of the story today friend go buy this book matt young jesus wept it sounds like the best book in the world um but i'm a nerd too so what do i know <laughs> well matt where can the people find you
2: um so i i write a like an economics policy newsletter on substack uh it's called the constituent um you can subscribe for free i'm not asking anybody to pay me money if you want to that'd be great but you can subscribe for free and uh i i um it's somewhat infrequent right now um but in the spring is when i really plan to do like two or three a week where i i um you know cuz economics is a really complicated subject and so i try to really simplify it in in terms that people can understand and and make it you know so that you don't have to Listen to people argue on cable news. I have no idea what they're talking about. So you can you can keep in touch with me there. It's called again the Constituent on Substack, um, and the place I'm probably most active is on Twitter. Um, my handle is at the Wonky Mat. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from people, especially if you have feedback on the book, angry or not. I'd love to hear it.
0: <laughs> One of ours. We love it. Um, also, friends, a little plug. If you like today's conversation and like similar topics, I would suggest that you listen to our friends over at Straight White American Jesus on the Irreverent um, Media Group. Group. It's I don't a great know. Podcast yes we love them um spencer where can the people find us
1: they can find us on instagram at speaking in church they can find josie at josie takes the world and they can find me at Spence Rose.
0: well once again thank you matt for joining us we're waiting for the next one i think the people are too all right friends <laughs> well stay woke or get woke and jesus loves you bye, bye.